is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, did Tony Blair tell the truth about whether war on Iraq was legal? This isn't about a, a lie or a conspiracy or a deceit or a deception. It's a decision. And 20 years on, Sir John Major on the first Gulf War. If we had gone beyond the United Nations resolution, we would have gone to war to uphold international law and we would have ended breaking international law. Cigarette. Headlines. Service personnel are facing cuts to their allowances, totalling £170 million a year. Those living overseas will bear the brunt of the changes, with the highest ranks losing most. In some cases, families could be thousands of pounds worse off every year. The MOD is denying it could reopen the defence review. It's after claims the cutbacks announced a few months ago won't achieve the savings reported at the time. 254 people with flu have died in the UK since September. 112 of those deaths were reported in the last week. A man's being questioned by police over the murder of Joe Yates in Bristol last month. The 32-year-old was arrested this morning. Scaffolding's being put up at the back of Joe Yates' flat. Police are to lose the power to detain terror suspects without charge for up to four weeks. Ministers say the limit will be cut to 14 days by the start of next week. And there'll be a general election in Ireland in March. The Prime Minister's announced the poll after a cabinet reshuffle. That's the latest. I'm Vicky Turner. Tony Blair returns to the Iraq inquiry this week to face more questions about his decision to take Britain to war in the Gulf almost eight years ago. When the former Prime Minister appeared before Sir John Tilcott's hearing 12 months ago, he insisted the world was a better place without Saddam Hussein in power, even if the reasons given for war turned out to be false. This time, Mr Blair's likely to face fresh questions about the legality of the invasion and whether he misled the Commons before the war started. In a moment, we'll look at the questions he's likely to face. But first, Paul Osborne's been listening back to what Tony Blair had to say a year ago. The Chilcot inquiries heard from dozens of witnesses in public and in private and read through thousands of documents. Now it wants to fill in the gaps. And that means a return for the man who took the decision to send British forces into battle in the Gulf. This isn't about a, a lie or a conspiracy or a deceit or a deception. It's a decision. It's a year since Tony Blair first appeared at the Iraq inquiry. The decision I had to take was, given Saddam's history, given his use of chemical weapons, given the over one million people whose deaths he caused, given, given ten years of breaking UN resolutions, could we take the risk of this man reconstituting his weapons programmes? Or is that a risk it would be irresponsible to take? And I formed the judgement, and it's a judgement in the end. It's a decision. I had to take the decision, and I believed... And in the end, so did the Cabinet, so did Parliament, incidentally, that we were right not to run that risk. Mr Blair is likely to be questioned about the apparent discrepancies between his public comments two months before the war and the advice he'd received from his Attorney-General. Lord Goldsmith initially told him that a second UN resolution explicitly authorising force would be needed. The following day, Mr Blair told MPs it wasn't necessary. Lord Goldsmith told the inquiry he was uncomfortable with the Prime Minister's statement. And a year ago, Mr Blair admitted his Attorney-General was in a difficult position. Eventually, he changed his mind 
and agreed military action did not need a second resolution. Anybody who knows Peter knows he would not have done it unless he had believed in it and thought that was the correct thing to do. And, and that was, for us and for our armed forces, that was sufficient. You weren't worried by him saying that he wouldn't expect to win in a court with this one? Well, I don't know that he said he, he was not to win. He simply said that, you know, you're going to have a... There's a case either way. And there always was a case either way. That's why it would have been preferable, politically, and to have removed any doubt to have had the second resolution. But in the end, we got to the point in um, the middle of March when, frankly, we had to decide. We, we, we were going either to back away or we were going to go forward. And I decided, and, um, for the reasons that I've given, that we should go forward. Protesters were waiting for Tony Blair a year ago and they'll probably be there again this time. But the questions posed by the Chilcot inquiry could be even more uncomfortable than last time. No regrets. Responsibility, but not a regret for removing Saddam Hussein. Come I on. think he was... A be quiet, please. I think that he was a monster. I believe he threatened not just the region but the world. And in the circumstances that we faced then, but I think even if you look back now, it was better to deal with this threat, to deal with it, to remove him from office. And I do genuinely believe that the world is safer as a result. Tony Blair ending that report by Paul Osborne. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio and we're joined on the line by The Guardian's security correspondent Richard Norton-Taylor. Hello to both of you. Richard, um, Lord Goldsmith felt uncomfortable about some of Tony Blair's public statements before the war. What exactly will the inquiry be asking about that, do you think? Well, I think they'll, they'll be asking him uh, two key points, actually. One was his relations with what he, what he assured uh, President Bush. But on the legal question of what, why did he not say beforehand that uh, Goldsmith, the, his, the government's chief law officer, persistently warned him about the uh, dangers or, or potential illegality of going to war without a second UN resolution, but telling Parliament, not telling Parliament that, in fact, in fact suggesting... Uh, in, in fact, probably misleading Parliament in the sense of omitting what Goldsmith was saying in the run-up to the war. Of course, just if I can say this, at the end of the day, and this is what I'm sure Tony Blair will say tomorrow, is at the end of the day, Peter Goldsmith, the uh, Attorney General, changed his mind and gave what he admitted was a green light to uh, the invasion. And that will be explored indeed at the Iraq Inquiry, I'm sure. It will, but all I'm saying is I think Tony Blair will say, yes, legal lawyers always argue about everything and so on and so forth. And at it, the end of the day, he will say, the Attorney General agreed with me. Is there any suggestion that the inquiry feels it's been misled by Mr Blair? Yes, on, on two things, really. Um, partly because out of omission, really, what, what Tony Blair did not say, what subsequently we have discovered from documents um, from the Attorney General's office, from Lord Goldsmith, including uh, oral evidence, actually, since uh, Tony Blair gave uh, evidence almost exactly a year ago, and uh, also, in particular, what the inquiry has seen in documents, but we haven't seen because they're still being suppressed, about the, uh, about, the, the, about the assurances that Tony Blair gave to President Bush in, in, uh, from, from 2002, really, from about a year before the invasion onwards, which were not reflected at all in any public debate in the Commons here or indeed in, uh, in uh, discussions in the Cabinet. 
Chris Billy, uh, given the fact that some of those correspondence, some of those letters between George Bush and Tony Blair will not be made public at the Iraq inquiry, what kind of a questioning do you think Tony Blair's going to get? Well, the difficulty is, of course, if they're not made, made public, not just at the Iraq inquiry. The Iraq inquiry, don't forget, has got these letters. It's actually seen them. The problem but is, it will stop the way they question him, well, presumably. The problem is they cannot refer to them. They cannot say, you told George Bush this. Why did you tell him that? And that is the restriction that's on it. And so to some extent, uh, Tony Blair can really go back to what he was doing on that first appearance and say, listen, you may not agree with what I did, but somebody, I was the prime minister but I did it, and I did it for all the reasons that you've heard him say. You know, the, he believed that, uh, that he called Saddam Hussein a monster, etc., etc. Et but none of this should we be surprised. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I know, just as, just as uh, Richard knows, that we, we, we don't start this whole thing in 2003, 2002. If you go back to 1998, 1999, I think, Tony Blair, in his speech, his famous speech in Chicago was actually saying we ought to get rid of Saddam. There is the basis. That was long before even George Bush became uh, President of the United States. So nothing that's going to happen tomorrow will surprise us. i tell you what would be quite fun. Go on. If, if Tony Blair's sense of public relations, which is not at all underdeveloped, if he turned around and said, oh, these letters, you know, I've got them in my book, George has put them in his book, why don't we make them public? Yes, we can use it. It would diffuse the whole thing. That would be the clever move, wouldn't it? Uh, Richard, um, although the inquiry won't rule eventually on whether the Iraq war was legal or not, that the whole process is bound to change the grounds on which politicians take us to war in future, isn't it? I think so, and I think the, you know, the government has, uh, has said that in future any uh, decision to go to war will be um, subject to a vote in the Commons. Um, I think Gordon Brown said that. I think even Blair said that, actually, after the uh, row and the controversy of the invasion of Iraq. I take Chris's point. I mean, I think it is a long time coming. I think Blair can ride over a lot of things, but it, it nevertheless is a supreme test, really, of the Chilcot inquiry's credibility, I think, uh, fairly or unfairly, as far as the public is concerned, is whether they'll be able to, how do I put it, not break Blair down. But they are armed. We haven't seen them, and they can't quote them. Um, but they are armed with documents, which uh, some of them have been leaked, actually, already. Uh, and they do show uh, that uh, Tony Blair did suggest to Bush, at least the ones that have been leaked, uh, that he would uh, join um, the Americans in invasion, come what may, with or without a second UN resolution. Now, Blair can probably say to that, well, um, we can go on the UN route forever and ever and ever anyway in the end of the day, the, the law said X, Y and Z. Yeah, but, um, but these kind of things are, are, are damaging only in that, I think we're potentially damaged only in that uh, Blair privately assured Bush things which he then did not uh, reflect in, in, in the Commons or in the Cabinet. Just, just very quickly, um, this Chilcot inquiry, although not supposed to be, is really the trial of Tony Blair. Uh, that's been done. Whatever he says tomorrow, it's been done. Tony Blair, in the minds of most of his detractors and also a lot of his friends, was guilty of all sorts of things. And I think that is really what Chilcott's uh, doing at the moment. The most important thing about Chilcott is that it will eventually, in its report, give us a tremendous insight, the detailed documentation and evidence 
that will give us an idea of how we went to war. Christopher, stay with us, but for now, Richard Norton-Taylor from The Guardian, thank you very much. Well, Tony Blair's return to the Iraq inquiry isn't the only reason the country's been in the news again this week. It's 20 years since the start of the first Gulf War. The Gulf War began just before midnight British time. Hundreds of British, American, French, Saudi and Kuwaiti fighter planes attacked military targets in Iraq and occupied Kuwait. The skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. We are determined to knock out Saddam Hussein's nuclear bomb potential. We will also destroy his chemical weapons facilities. Much of Saddam's artillery and tanks will be destroyed. Initial reports from General Schwarzkopf are that our operations are proceeding according to plan. These traitors will be overthrown after the defeat of the Satan in the White House, Bush. Victory is there with the support of God and the criminals were rot in hell. The sounds of the first day of Operation Desert Storm launched the day after the deadline set for Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait. A month of intensive air attacks from British, American and Saudi forces was followed by a short land offensive. By late February, the US President George Bush declared victory, but Saddam Hussein remained in power for another 12 years and it would take a second war and President Bush's son to topple his regime. Sir John Major had been Prime Minister for just two months when the war started. He spoke to our reporter, James Hurst. I remember very plainly standing on a soapbox talking to what looked like many thousands of troops. And there were several things that struck me then. The first, most vividly of all, that I have never forgotten, was how young they were. The vast majority of them were 18 to 22. Their commanders were in their late 20s. Uh, Rupert Smith, who was the commanding officer, perhaps late 30s. So they were very young. And I remember when I was speaking to them, I knew the date that the war would start was January the 16th, which happened by chance to be my son's 16th birthday. Many of these boys weren't much older than that. And when I was talking to them, my son's face superimposed itself upon theirs, and it brought home very vividly to me the risk they were running, the commitment they were making, and the duty of care we had to minimise casualties. On the one hand, you had to ensure the job was done. On the other hand, as you mentioned, you wanted to minimise casualties. Mm. You were aware of the age of, of your own son. How mm. do you balance the desire to protect those people and do the job? It's extremely difficult, but in terms of the operation as a whole... I came to it as a relative novice about military matters. I had an amateur's interest no more. But I think one learns a great deal very quickly. And it seemed to me that when you're engaged in a military conflict, firstly, war should be the last resort, not the first. On this occasion, it was unavoidable. But then if you are going uh, to war, you go to war uh, when the planning has been completed, when you have all the equipment in place that is necessary, when you have an overwhelming force, and also when you have an exit plan as well, and when you are clear in your mind what you need to achieve so that you know when the conflict is over. All of those things were necessary. They were necessary, firstly, to successfully conduct the operation, but also, of course, for the protection 
of the troops who were there. Mercifully, the total of casualties were, was by a multiple lower than anything we had anticipated. We thought that the Republican Guard would be more effective than it was. We were very, very worried indeed that the Iraqis would use the chemical weapons they knew they had. And so we had prepared for the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility of a much larger number of casualties than there were. And as it happens, we, we lost only 47 fatalities apart from uh, other serious injuries. Now that is a lot of families, a lot of lives, and a lot of people who were affected. So that is very hard. That is very hard. The question a lot of people still ask is, was it the right decision to <laughs> end the fighting when we did, or should we have pushed on for regime change, which eventually happened 12 years on? No, we shouldn't and we couldn't, and I'll tell you exactly why. Um, when we went to war, we went to war under a United Nations resolution. That was the legal basis for the war. And the legal basis for the war was to evict the Iraqis from Kuwait, not to go into Kuwait and drag Saddam Hussein out by the heels. That was the basis for the war. It was also the basis upon which the coalition was drawn up of Arab states, Western states, countries from all over the world, a remarkable coalition brought together. And if we had gone beyond the United Nations resolution, several things would have happened. Firstly, the coalition would have broken up. Secondly, we would have gone to war to uphold international law, and we would have ended breaking international law. And thirdly, if we had assembled the coalition on that basis and then gone beyond it and broken our word, who would have trusted the word of an American president and a British prime minister in the future? And so I think it was absolutely the right decision to stop then. And I think there's one further point that if any critics still remain, they should remember. We were very conscious that if you went into Baghdad, and brought down the regime, you would then have to run the country. I think we have seen subsequently the extra difficulties that causes. Sir John Major speaking to James Hurst. Uh, Christopher, uh, Sir John Major, very clear there that there was no mandate to depose Saddam Hussein, and yet that there were critics at the time, and there still are some critics who say we should have gone on to Baghdad. We couldn't have done it, though. Mm. You see, that was, that was the whole point. I mean, John Major makes it perfectly clear. For example, the so-called coalition would have broken up. Uh, in terms of the number of forces, that wouldn't have mattered, mattered so much. For example, and something he didn't mention was that the Iraqi Air Force, which is actually rather good, wasn't there. Why not? Because they'd flown. The Air Force flew the planes into Iran and left them there. But as soon as the Iranians saw them, don't forget the Iranians and the Iraqis had been at war with each other for eight years before that. The Iranians mm. got them and said, well, we got, we got an Air Force suddenly. Right. But the most important part of it, there was some film that Colin Powell, who was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, our sort of CDS in America, saw. And uh, there was a line of d tanks, Iraqi tanks, withdrawing up the, the Kuwait road to Baghdad. And the American uh, aircraft went in. They shot those tanks up. And there were charred figures of the tankmen hanging out of the cockpits. And there was a pilot, one of these pilots who said, hey, that was a turkey shoot. Mm. I like this sort of work. Mm. And Colin Powell, we talked to him later on about it, and he said, no, there was no way in which we could have ever done that. But most importantly, there wasn't the logistics, there wasn't the army, yeah. there wasn't... And, and then when you got there, there was no machinery which to run the country uh, for perhaps the next ten years. Sit rep with Kate 
Still to come this week, is the Middle East heading for another war? Everyone says they, they might, there might be a war, so yes, I'm afraid there's no good future here. Tunisia has had only two presidents since gaining independence from France 45 years ago, but the second, Ben Ali, is in hiding in Saudi Arabia after a popular uprising forced him to flee. Under his leadership, Tunisia gained the reputation of a tightly run police state. But as the crisis gathered pace, Ben Ali went on TV, initially threatening protesters, then offering concessions. Hours after declaring a state of emergency, he escaped into exile. Mohamed Ali Harat, a former political prisoner in Tunisia, now runs a TV channel in London, and he's hoping what's being called the Jasmine Revolt will spread to other Arab nations. Algeria will be next on the line, Libya will be next on the line, and hopefully uh, Egypt, which is the largest uh, in terms of population, the largest uh, Arab country. And uh, we are hoping that uh, the disease of dictatorship, is we are going to get rid of dictatorships forever, for good. Well, is he right? Christopher Lee is still with me and on the line is Claire Spencer, head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House, a leading organisation on international affairs. Uh, Claire Spencer, good to see speak to you today. How, just put this in context, how did the protests against Ben Ali start exactly? Well, it was a young unemployed man uh, in the interior of the country, which is traditionally the poorest. It's far from the tourist resorts, so there was no investment, who had tried to get himself a job as a graduate in in Tunis, the the capital, hadn't succeeded, came back, tried to earn a living through selling fruit and vegetables, and was actually uh, prevented from doing so by the local police, who uh, insulted him by apparently a woman police officer hit him. In desperation, he set fire to himself in front of the town hall where he tried to take his case for redress and this I think triggered the imagination of a whole generation who find themselves in very uh, similar situations that uh, in addition to high levels of unemployment you really do need to know people in high places have the right connections to get yourself a job. So just what kind of a regime did Ben Ali run? Well, it's been described in many ways as a mafia state, as a police state. I know I was in Tunisia last summer and my colleagues keep telling me, kept telling me then there's more police per capita in Tunisia than anywhere else in the region. The intelligence services were keeping a close check on emails and internet connections. Uh, But gradually people seem to be getting around these. And I think it's probably true to say that it's it's as much a Twitter and Facebook revolution. Uh, The information got out as to what had happened to this young man and as the protests grew uh, locally to start with, they, they spread, partly because of the, the police uh, clampdown on them, the use of live ammunition against protesters, which now, looking into this, people are saying around 100 people have died. So it was a heavily police state, yes. And Claire, we, we heard Mohammed Al-Harat there earlier saying that the other nations like Algeria, Libya may follow. How nervous are other Arab nations? Well, I think it was summed up yesterday by the Secretary General of the Arab League actually saying openly in a quite unprecedented way that Arab uh, governments must address the frustrations. He actually used the anger and frustrations of of the young to provide them with jobs, to provide them with opportunities, uh, that they were waiting for this and had been waiting too long. So this is is quite an open admission that all is not well uh, in the region. As for direct contagion, I think every system is different. The role of the military has actually been critical 
In the case of Tunisia, they were impartial. They were not involved uh, in repressing people before the protests. So their hands are clean, if you like. And they have been maintaining order in Tunisia since. This is not the case for the militaries, certainly in Algeria or indeed in Egypt. And Christopher, if this were to spread, where would you see the next protest, do you think? I don't think that I would see it spreading as it is in Tunisia. Replicated, then. Yeah. Um, what we have is, is entirely uh, speculation that, for example, in Egypt, where there is an uncertainty about the future of the ruling dynasty, if you like, there, uh, where Mr. Ben Ali has gone, let's say, to Saudi Arabia, there is an unease that the people are not satisfied with the old, the monarchy type of government. And so you can actually make a case for saying, right, this could start something. But we have seen this uh, for the past 20, 25 years in different places where you have a revolution, whether it's an orange revolution, a saffron revolution or whatever, it doesn't actually spread. It's always contained in the same place because the way of governing, the way of authority uh, retains its, uh, for example, security, is quite different. And also the motives. What it doesn't do, though, is allow for the fact that, as Claire started saying, you know, this was a young man, he was educated, he was unemployed. And it is the youth, educated youth, unemployed, throughout not just the Middle East, but throughout all the volatile areas of the world, that are likely to be uh, subject to radicalization, and that is one of the huge problems that the, the whole Western organizations are facing at the moment. Well, tensions also high in Lebanon, where the coalition government fell last week, prompting fears of violence in the notoriously unstable country. Hezbollah and its allies triggered the collapse, furious at the continuing investigation into the assassination almost six years ago of the former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. Draft indictments in the case were handed over this week. They're still secret, but but it's widely thought Hezbollah could be implicated in the killing. On the streets of Beirut, there's growing concern the political row could escalate. Everyone says they, they might, there might be a war, so yes, I'm afraid. Everything's possible here, yeah. It, it has before, so it, it is possible. Then. There's no good future here in this country. A war and war and war. Hezbollah calls the tribunal investigating Rafiq Hariri's death an Israeli project and Walid Zakaria, a Lebanese MP loyal to the group, is sceptical about the inquiry. Well, Claire Spencer from Chatham House is still with us and Christopher, of course, is here in the studio. Uh, Claire, give us a beginner's guide. What's at stake here exactly? Well, it's very complicated. It dates back to 2005 when Rafi Hariri, who was the former prime minister, was actually killed in a, in a very uh, notable explosion on the corniche of Beirut, right in the centre of town. Uh, this unleashed a whole series of protests uh, and led eventually, to cut the story short, uh, to the formation of this tribunal, the special tribunal, to investigate who his killers were. Now, at first, and one of the complicating factors now, because it's just been released, his son, who was uh, the Prime Minister last week, is now the caretaker Prime Minister, Saad Hariri, was, was recorded on tape, and this is now, now being circulated, uh, suggesting quite definitely that it was the Syrians who did this, the Syrians who, who were behind the assassination. In the course of the preliminary investigations to set up this tribunal, uh, it now emerges that the, it appears that the primary suspects, and as you say, the, the, the indictments are still secret, are members of Hezbollah, who are known to be 
very close to Syria, supported by Syria and Iran. Um, and if they are indicted, what do you think will happen, Claire? Well, uh, the, the crisis at the moment is Hezbollah has left the government threatening uh, Saad Hariri that they won't uh, re-enter negotiations to reform a government unless he completely distances himself um, from the tribunal. Others, uh, particularly from the Shia communities who are close to uh, Hezbollah, are questioning why there hasn't been a full and thorough investigation of the alleged Israeli role in this. As you say, they claim the Israelis did it. How much evidence is there that uh, the Israeli connection has been investigated if indeed there is one. And I think some of this has to be seen, justice has to be seen to be done for this whole tribunal to be credible. But we may see we may see a crisis before then. If Saad Hariri, I think this is unlikely, agrees to distance himself and make some noises about investigating the Israeli links, this of course will inflame opinion in Israel, where already they are on standby watching what Hezbollah, which is very heavily armed, will do next. And of course the last incident, which was uh, which is extremely dangerous, and as, as one of your interviews suggested, war may be imminent, was the 2006 war launched um, by Israel against uh, Lebanon, which was extremely damaging for Lebanese economy and indeed the people on, on the receiving end of that. All right, Claire Spencer from Chatham House, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher, uh, looking ahead, um, Afghanistan, you, you've got a few things to point out well, that Af- might be coming up in the next week on that, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, Afghanistan. President Karzai has suspended the idea of Parliament sitting after all. And that's because there's still the investigation, still the accusations that the elections last September were corrupt. In other words, we uh, we have President Karzai, who has been a virtual dictator since last September, and we support that for the moment. The other thing is that the Americans are actually saying they've got to do something about uh, the transportation of fuel into Afghanistan. It costs $26 billion a year just to get energy into uh, to uh, American, British, and other coalition it's forces. Figure. Oh, it's absolutely astonishing. It also costs in manpower. Um, since the war started there, the Americans have lost a thousand, thousand people just protecting uh, those oil uh, convoys. Forty-seven drivers lo- uh, were killed last year. Which is why you say foam is important. Foam briefly. is important because <laughs> if you insulate certain things, you don't uh, buildings, for example, even tents, you don't have to use so much fuel, and that's extremely important. Christopher, thanks for leaving it on that note. Very interesting one. Good for, to see you today. Thanks for your time. Please join us again same time next week for SITREP. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.